this morning, we're in Hebrews 4. Uh, I love this passage. Uh, I have found it to be all the more true and abundantly precious to me over the last several months. And I think, though, if you were to uh, sort of make a ranking, if you were to try and rank all of the books of the Bible in terms of importance, which would be impossible to do, I think, in many respects, but I would say because you could just be like, it's it's the Bible. It's all important. It's all the most important. Yes. <laughs> but if you were forced to, to make some sort of ranking of trying to list which books weigh heavier or ought to weigh heavier than others, I would hasten to say that Hebrews ought to be in the top or at the very top of the list. Hebrews, I would say, is one of the most, if not the most important books you can ever read in the scriptures. And I think it's more important than ever to come to that realization, precisely because a couple of years ago, there was an, a, very, a very prominent evangelical pastor who famously, boldly said from his pulpit that for, he says this, quote, Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. And that for Christians to remain relevant, for the church to remain sort of uh, able to be uh, recognized as a, a, a veritable sort of institution in the modern world, that they need to ditch all of the books of the Old Testament and only focus on the New Testament. Which is, by the way, completely bogus. <laughs> it's completely false. Essentially, it was just hard for people to wrap their minds, perhaps around all the fierce and all of these sort of frustrating stories that populate the Old Testament. And they really can't sort of see the line that cuts through it. The Old Testament is old. It's violent. It's, it's wicked. It's outdated. It has this sort of vengeful God at the heart of it. Which, by the way, is a teaser because I want to show you that that's false. But that's the sort of division that's often created many times. There's a God of the Old Testament and he's all about justice and judgment and vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And then we get to the New Testament and we have this Jesus who is presented to us. Many intellectuals like Jesus. He's one who speaks grace and mercy and compassion and comes near to the brokenhearted and touches the outcast and the lost and the poor and the blind. He's very philanthropic with the way he deals with his people. <laughs> Let me just say, there's one God of the Bible. There's not two. There's not a God of the old and a God of the new. It's one God presented in both in glorious testaments. One thing that I have come profoundly to learn and to see is that grace is a through line of all 66 books. It isn't just something that magically appears on the scene once Luke 2 happens. Grace is from the beginning. Side story, Genesis 3.15. The first message of grace. <laughs> on the very ground where Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, he promises what? That the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. All of that they had just ruined was going to be remade. That's the story that encapsulates the rest of the Bible. How all along the way we see the promise of the serpent's crusher. 
And how it weaves through men's hearts. How sometimes it falls out of favor and falls out of faith. And yet persistently and predominantly throughout all of the Bible. We have a God who is tender and loving and patient with people who continually frustrate his promises. Just think about Just think about all the, all the different covenants that God makes with people throughout the Old Testament. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And on and on it goes. And each one is broken by the very person that he makes the covenant with. And he continues to covenant with these same people. The very people who are continually to frustrate his patience. <laughs> He's continually patient with them. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. That's just extra, extra. Because this idea that the Old Testament is something that we need to get rid of is, again, it's, as my dad would say, it's baloney. It it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Because if you throw out the Old Testament, the New Testament loses all of its meaning. It loses its purpose in its story. Also, we don't get to choose which parts of God's revealed word that we like best. Well, I'm only going to focus on the Gospels. No, Jesus comes to fulfill all that has come before him. Such is why the Old Testament is critical for understanding what we hold true. It's critical for understanding the cross and why it was necessary. Why did Jesus need to make an atoning sacrifice? And why can we be so sure of this definite uh, gospel that we have in Jesus? Well, I would say there's a lot of books that articulate that. But there's no book that better articulates the necessity of the atonement and what Jesus did. And why it was important, why we hold to it, and why we can have confidence and assurance other than Hebrews. Hebrews has been called by many the most Old Testament book of the New Testament. (laughs) And rightly because the author spends his time thinking very critically, but also thinking very meditatively on this Jesus. It functions as a link, I would say. It's a, it's, a, it's a letter, yes, it's a letter to the Hebrews, but it's almost like a sermon. You can see, actually, it's a 12 or thir- a 13-chapter sermon in which the, the preacher is going through and articulating all the various ways of this. He, he's explaining this really simple premise. Jesus is better. That's, that's his essential sort of thesis for the whole book. He's, he's better than the angels. He's, he's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than all the patriarchs that have come before you. He's better in every single way. And you can trust in him. He's, and he's better. Why? Precisely because he has come to establish, as he often terms it, a better covenant. Go to chapter 7, verse 22. And he says this. Uh, Hebrews seven twenty-two. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Notice he's already contrasting between the two. There was a priesthood that came before and there was constantly people that had to come in as successors to the priesthood because they were men. They were fleshly. They died. But this man... 
which is a subtle way of talking about Jesus, he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood, he says. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto him, unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is Jesus. I actually skipped the verse I wanted to read. It's verse 22. (laughs) I actually started with verse 23. Verse 22. And they, uh, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. A better uh, sort of gospel that we have. A better uh, covenant is what Jesus has come to be. The surety, the guarantee of. This is his whole argument. And I'm, I promise I'm going to try not to like preach the whole book, although I really want to. <laughs> um, maybe we'll get there. Maybe that's down the road we'll preach all through Hebrews. But nestled within this argument of the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest is these verses that we read, that Pastor Nathan read, verses 14 through 16, that close chapter 4. Verses which have persisted for centuries as a boundless source of consolation and comfort and truth. Precisely because of what these verses reveal. Notice again, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Relief, comfort, assurance. Mercy, grace, peace. These are the themes of these verses. Especially these are true when suffering seems to strike us. When hardship seems to come about in our lives. And the comfort I think arises because these verses specifically shine a very bright spotlight on the heart of God. They reveal his care and his concern for the likes of you and me. They function, I think, one writer put it similarly like this, that they function like a divine stethoscope. They reveal God's heartbeat. They reveal that the heart of Christ beats for people who are what? Precisely those in need. Sinners and sufferers. Those whose circumstances are shaky at best. Those whose condition is almost ruinous. His heart goes out to these To those who feel that way. And I would hasten to say this. That everyone here is familiar with that. Everyone who is here this morning. Comes with some sort of trouble. That is vexing us. That is is on our hearts and minds. That we would wish could just go away. There's some sort of care. That weighs us down. Like a weight on our shoulders. And it's making us hunch. We do our best. We do our best to come into church and put a smile on our face because we have been lied into believing that the church is only for those who have everything put together. Let me tell you, these verses decimate that thinking. 
It also decimates the thinking that no one knows what I'm going through. Have you ever thought that when there's an ordeal that, that you are struggling with? No one knows what I'm going through because no one can possibly know. Because no one has ever had to deal with the type of, type of hardship that I'm dealing with. No one can ever sort of relate to the type of quandary that I am, to the type of quarrel and struggle that is weighing me down. In fact, that's completely not true. I may not know. The person sitting next to you may not know or can sympathize with what you're enduring. But there's one who does. There's one who can. You know what his name is? His name is Jesus, the Son of God, as the writer here says. That he, as he says in verse 15, for we have not in the high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was touched in such a degree, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's okay. He was touched in such a degree that he can sympathize with all of our circumstances and feelings. And that's why he is a better priest. And the writer here, and actually the Spirit of God himself, wants us to know this morning that he is intimately aware of your present sorrow, of the valley of the shadow of death that you may feel like you're walking through at this very moment. And he wants you to know also that he's not just aware of what you're enduring, of what you're walking through, but he wants you to know that he is present with you in the midst of this walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And if that weren't enough, he desires that we would just be so encouraged, so uplifted in the knowledge that absolutely nothing can hinder this work of his son for you. Nothing can obstruct his love. Nothing can make it cease. That's what's found in these verses. It's verses... That give us grace and peace and hope and confidence precisely for those who are in trouble, who are walking in sorrow. And why? Why is that so? Well, I want to notice three things for us this morning that comes from these verses. First of all, number one, we have a confession. Number one, we have a confession. Look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. This verse, verse 14, is essentially sort of the encapsulating thesis statement of this writer's or this preacher's next subject, which actually began back in chapter 3, verse 1. If you notice chapter 3, 1, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the uh, capital apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He has just finished sort of articulating in verses 1 or chapters 1 and 2 how Jesus is the superior being because he's not like angels and that he was made like men. And now he's going into one of his offices that he is a superior priest. And he continues in verses 3 and 4 and sort of introducing this topic by showing them why all of Israel's priests were so insufficient. Because as we noted in verse or chapter 7 that they, they were constantly uh, dying because they were human. They were constantly insufficient in the sacrifices that they were making. This is a topic that will continue for several chapters. This Comparison and contrast of human priests with this true and better priest, which is Jesus. 
And yet here, at the end of chapter 4, he urges his audience to, as he says there, hold fast to their profession. To what they confess to believe. Cling to it. Don't let it go. Cling tightly to what you believe. Because what you believe and what you've been told in the gospel, essentially he's saying, is not based on any of those previous priesthoods. Your profession, what you confess to believe in, is rooted and grounded in the fact that none other than Jesus, the Son of God, the second individual of the Trinity, is here, their great high priest, making intercession for them. Therefore, he says, don't let that profession go. How does that connect to suffering? (laughs) Well, I think... You know, one of the many things that seasons of peril and struggle and trials, suffering, one of the many things that seasons of suffering bring about is not just oftentimes the pain that's included, whether it be physical or emotional, things that come about that give us a thorn in the flesh that we can't get rid of, something that we just can't seem to overcome. Whether it be a constant ailment, whether it be a a, a diagnosis, whether it be sort of a muscular or physical or sort of structural thing that we, we can't seem to get over. There's immense pain in that, yes. But I think it's also one of the one of the perils of suffering is also the disappointment and sort of the the disillusionment that sometimes we feel as well. Suffering has a way of rocking our entire world. Shaking us to our core to where sometimes not just our days are disrupted by this newfound thing we have to deal with. Also what we believe is disrupted too. Because we had in our minds that God was a good God. And yet this situation feels utterly opposite of good. That person wasn't supposed to leave. That person wasn't supposed to pass away so quickly. This job wasn't supposed to slip through my fingers. Fill in the blank with the calamity that you might be very familiar with. Whatever it is, whatever distresses us, whatever disaster strikes, it has a way, I would say, of rattling what we believe. It has a way of rattling what we confess to know. And it's easy to get caught up looking in the circumstances. Like Peter. Remember that wonderful story of Peter walking on the waves. He's called out by Jesus. Ironically, leave it to Peter to be the only one to take Jesus at his word. (laughs) Sort of putting Jesus up to the test. He walks out on that water. And he's walking fine. Until what? Until he looks at the storm that's raging around him. And still all he sees are nothing but high waves that seem to make everything so much more frantic. And that's when he sinks. It's not meant to be metaphorical, but the metaphor is true. That when the circumstances of our lives seem to cloud everything and get in the way of us seeing Jesus, our confession can crack. What we believe can sometimes be uh, left to the wayside. 
Such is why this writer's encouragement here is so appropriate. Precisely for those who seem to be in trouble. Whose world seem to be going upside down. You have a confession that cannot change. That cannot be altered. That cannot be in one degree altered by what you are enduring. It's a confession that you can confess to believe because it's sure and it's steadfast. And as he says in chapter 6 verse 19, it anchors your soul. And it's what? That none other than the second of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, is your high priest who entered into the veil of the Holy of Holies to make intercession for you. To pay the 100% payment for your sin that was necessary. This is what Jesus has done. You see, this harkens back. What he's making reference to in this great high priest is the fact that, that during the old, the old Testament days, the days of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, of course you might be familiar, that when once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest that was sort of put there and installed by God would enter into that place, the Holy of Holies. One day a year, he would enter there and He would make sacrifice for all the people. Notice chapter 9 verse 1. The writer is talking about this. Then verily verse 1. The first covenant had also the ordinance of divine service. And a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread. Which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil the tabernacle. Which is called the holiest of all. Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. Of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost. This signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Which was a figure for the time, then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. He's talking about here that this was rightly ordained by God, but it actually didn't fulfill what it was there to symbolize. Actually, he affirms this in the next chapter. The sort of ineffectuality of these priests. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10. For the law... Having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. They couldn't do it. It was prescribed to make them perfect but it couldn't. Why? Because he says verse 2 for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. They were a symbol for what Jesus was going to come and do completely and fully and perfectly. The blood of the, of the, of the bulls and goats as he references here wasn't effectual in itself 
was effectual in what it symbolized. And such is why we have a much better confession. Go back to chapter 9. I promise I'm not going to preach through the whole book. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither of the blood, by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into once, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were, uh, that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I love, I love the preacher's argument. He's, he's decimating the, 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 the belief in these old ways and showing them why what they have to believe is so much better. Because Jesus went in once for all and it was accomplished. The ministry of our great high priest is so unlike the ministry of the priest that went before. Why? Because they had to continually do it. They were daily making sacrifices, daily making offerings, and yearly making this very significant atoning sacrifice for all the people. Year after year after year. Jesus did it once. Because his blood was divine and he carried the weight of all the world's sins. And then when he laid down and died for the world's sins, he said, it is finished. And that means everything necessary for salvation is finished in him. It's accomplished in Jesus, our great high priest. As he says back in Hebrews 4 verse 14, that he's already passed into the heavens. He's already entered into his rest. Why? Because his work was accomplished. Chapter 10 verse 11 says a very similar point. And every priest standeth daily ministering, the writer says, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man... Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. You have a finished salvation that can never be taken away from you. This is what you can confess to believe. Yes, even through heartache and through turmoil and through incredibly vexing seasons of life. What can you confess? That Jesus, your high priest, has entered into the veil on your behalf. Nothing can change this. Nothing can alter it. No matter what happens in Washington, no matter what happens in the next 11 months of this year, no matter what happens in your personal life, Jesus, your high priest, has finished your salvation. It's accomplished in him. In the blood that he offers, and because it's his own blood, it's not the blood of some bull or goat, some sacrificial animal. He is the sacrificial animal. This is our confession. 
It's steadfast. You know what that means? That word means literally firm and unwavering. When your life feels as if it's topsy-turvy and everything is wavering, everything is unbalanced, everything seems off-kilter, this is the immovable, unshakable confession of your faith that here the writer is saying, hold on to this. Because no matter what gives way, no matter what around you rages, no matter what leads you to dismay and despair, nothing you or I can ever face can undo what your great high priest has already done. This is Jesus, our great high priest. We have a confession which leads me also to number two. I must hasten. Verse 15. We have a companion. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You have a confession, but I would say even more precious, we have a companion. As we said earlier, one of the wretched feelings that suffering brings about is is that feeling of loneliness that automatically is stirred up. Grief, despair, things that we suffer regularly make us feel all alone. As if we are the only ones that are dealing with this. That we are the only ones that can know what we are enduring. That we have no friends that we can rely on. That we can sort of trust in. That isolating feeling is easy to buy into when suffering strikes and hardship hits. It's easy. I think it's there by that that adversary, the devil. He wants to make you think that you are all alone. That you don't have anyone to rely on. That you have no friend that sticks as close as a brother. That you are in fact isolated. And it's easy to buy into that because it can feel that way. No one knows what I'm going through. Let me tell you, that's, that's the greatest lie of suffering imaginable in this life. The greatest lie is that no one knows what you're going through. It's a lie. Straight from the father of lies. And the more you believe it, the more you're adding trouble to your trouble. And such is why here, precisely why this preacher of Hebrews is reminding these who are suffering in this church that they have a companion in their suffering who knows deeply and intimately what they are enduring. He knows what you're going through. Verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The great high priest who made atonement for you by shedding his own blood for you, walks with you through every valley that you walk through, who goes with you through every moment of suffering that you endure. He is there by your side in the ashes of your grief and sorrow and loss. This is Jesus. This is not just any companion. It's Jesus, the Son of God. That's why I think this verse, verse 15, I think is one of the most stunning verses in all of the Bible. That I continually resort to because it categorically affirms that you don't have to feel alone in your suffering. And also you don't have to deny that you are suffering. 
Precisely because you have a God who knows exactly what you are suffering. (laughs) Have you ever been sharing your heart with someone? Someone you rely on perhaps, someone, a close friend. You're sharing this really uh, sort of struggling situation that you are enduring with that you can't seem to make uh, heads or tails of. And sometimes that friend, well-meaning perhaps, they say, I know what you mean. Sometimes those words can mean a lot. Sometimes those words can really make us feel as if they are not said with any genuineness. Because we can think, they don't know what we mean. (laughs) They don't know the, the, the deep pains that I'm feeling. Sometimes those words don't mean what we think they do. (laughs) Here, Jesus, the Son of God, He's basically screaming at us. I know what you mean. And he doesn't say that in an artificial way or an insincere way or a disingenuous way. He knows intimately what it means to suffer, what it means to lose, what it means to grieve, what it means to have betrayal uh, sort of sweep him over, what it means to undergo heartache and hardship. He knows it intimately. As it says there, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It means he was literally affected by all the same experiences. He says this, the writer, back in chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Jesus also, himself likewise, took part of the same. He took part of flesh and blood too. That through death he might destroy him, that the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. This is the ministry of your companion. He is made in every way like you, yet without sin, so he knows exactly what you are enduring. Exactly what you are feeling. Whatever calamity you might have faced, he has faced. Whatever emotion that you are going through, he has felt. There is no circumstance that is foreign to him. There is no struggle that he doesn't have mercy and grace to tender. There's nothing that you can imagine that he is not sympathetic towards. Because as I've said I think I said this back at Christmas time, and I can't escape it. And even here, I have to say it again. So I might sound like a broken record, but guess what? Your confession is precisely that you have a companion, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God. And he's a God altogether different than any other God. Why? Because he's a God who knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to cry and to sweat and to be vexed and distressed. He knows what it's like to lose sleep. He knows what it's like to hunger. He knows what it's like to feel tired. This is your God. Jesus. He understands your humanity. Can you think about that? All of the the fragileness and the failures and the feebleness that constitute our existence here, Jesus was familiar with. He was touched by the same experiences. 
failure and fragility and, and feebleness. He knows all of that. He knows just how weak you are. Because he himself assumed human weakness. This is the companion you have. You can say anything that you want to him in prayer precisely because he's familiar with it all. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's your companion who triumphed over sin, who prevailed over death in the grave. And he's with you in your grief. You have a confession. We have a companion. And number three, lastly, we have confidence. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have confidence. This is something that I hinted at, but I think we often, uh, often feel when, when, when seasons of peril strike us. That there's this underlying sense of embarrassment and shame that, pre- that prevails as we go through a tormenting season. I can't let anyone else know what I'm going through. I can't let anyone see the cracks in my life. The cracks in my faith. I don't know if this is necessarily something that we're born with. Or something that we, that we just learn by way of our culture. I think it's perhaps a little of both. I don't know. But somewhere along the way. We have come to believe. Conditioned I would say. That suffering equals weakness. And weakness equals bad. So, therefore, if you're suffering, something's automatically wrong. Something is deficient, and you are deficient. This is essentially what the, quote, friends of Job were trying to get him to see all throughout their conversations. You did something. You did something to make all of this happen. Because obviously, suffering is weakness, and weakness is bad. Therefore, suffering ought to be avoided at all costs. Such is why, again... We who suffer come in through the door of church and we put on a happy face. Why? Because no one can know what what is going on. No one can see what is happening in my soul. No one can see the hurt that's raging inside. Because I have to let no one see how truly weak I am. How truly suffering I am. This is the law of the land, I would say. It's a very unfair and ungracious one. Because who has the power ultimately and the insight to escape suffering and to pretend it doesn't exist completely? No one. And that's why the writer's words here are so poignant and powerful because it riddles and it, and it totally decimates any notion that avoiding suffering by pretending that we're strong when we are really weak and it shows how unnecessary that is, how completely unwarranted such notions are. Why, as he says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do not, we are so free because of the gospel. That we don't have to let any shame of our weakness of what we're suffering hinder us from coming to him. 
His arms are open wide to welcome any and all who are suffering to his side. And it's precisely because we are weak that we are able to come with boldness. That's sort of the underlying point of this passage. That your weakness actually means you can be bold. Because he is a priest that seeks to minister precisely to those who are weak. That's Jesus' mission. I haven't come to heal those who need no healing. I have come to seek and to save the lost. To heal those who are sick. I've come to speak mercy and peace to those who are weak. And that's really what that word boldly means. It's very indicative of what we ought to pray. What we ought to confess when we come to church. Because it's a word that literally means without concealment. It's suggestive of this sort of fearless speech. Where we have no thought of what the other person might think by what we confess. And you get the picture here. That because of this great high priest's ministry to and for us. Not only are we free to come to him at all times. Which by the way is a most remarkable fact that we don't have time to delve into. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. That we are free to come boldly into the throne of grace. And stand there. And here, the writer here is saying, it's not just that we can come boldly anytime we want, but that we can come and speak freely with unembarrassed and unrestrained boldness of what we confess. Why? Precisely because of what came before, that we have a high priest who is unsurprised by anything that we confess, because he's felt it all, he's dealt with it all, he has suffered it all. There's nothing that you can surprise him by. He knows everything. Verses 12 and 13 of the same chapter. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees through it. Your facade of put togetherness, he sees through it. Your charade of having everything okay, he knows that that's false. (laughs) And that's why his heart yearns for us to put down the mask and come to him with boldness, unrestrained, unmasked confession of who we are. I am desperate and needy and I need your grace. This is your high priest. He's not disgusted by your weakness or your suffering. He doesn't blink when you confess something. He responds with unblinking mercy. Think about that. He doesn't flinch. Because you see the opposite of the world's mantra that suffering equals weakness and weakness equals bad. The God's word affirms for us that just the opposite is true. Is that when we are weak, that's when we are strong. It's the opposite way that we often think. But this is precisely the gospel. When we're weak, when we are strong. And when we are weak, you and I have a priest who comes near to remind us that his grace is sufficient. It's up to the task. It's more than sufficient. (laughs) 
He's more than just a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as the proverb says. He's Jesus, the Son of God, whose spirit lives inside you. Who reminds you that God's heart beats for those who are desperate and weary and lost. Therefore, we can pour out our heart to this great high priest in the fullest and truest sense of the term. That's what come boldly really means. Have you ever had a good prayer like that? Excuse the sort of vulgarity, but you're almost just sort of like vomiting all the things that are in your soul. (laughs) You're free to do that because of this Jesus, this great high priest. All of the, the cobwebs of your faith, he tears down. All the things you want to hide and mask, he tears down because we have this confidence. You have a priest who welcomes anyone from anywhere to come to him just as they are. He doesn't look for any pretense. He doesn't look for any sort of pretending, any charade, any sense of piety. Come to me in your weakness and your desperation. And come boldly and confess that weakness and desperation. Because you have no idea what I can do through you. No matter what your trial this morning. This is what you have. You have a man of sorrows who sits with you in your sorrow. You have a confession, you have a companion, and you have unbounding confidence. Precisely because of this high priest who rules and reigns for you and me. This high priest who was the man of sorrows, sent to suffer for your sin and for mine. Do you believe that this morning? I pray that you do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.